Hello once again, everybody. Thank you for joining me in the betters boxes, bangthebook.com's MLB betting podcast for Monday, April 13th. I am your host, Adam Burke. This and every edition of the betters box presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. A lot of NFL draft stuff coming your way over at bangthebook.com and here on Bang the Book Radio over the next week and a half. And you can bet that over at DSI Sportsbook. They got a lot of draft props available for you. Same thing over at places like Bet Online, Five Dimes, Bookmaker, My Bookie, Bovada. A lot of places to bet on NFL draft props, NFL futures, college football futures, all that type of thing. Head on over to bangthebook.com and check out our sportsbook reviews bangthebook.com slash sportsbooks. You'll see some exclusive deposit bonuses for those different outlets that are out there, and you'll get the opportunity to shop around for the best prices that are available in the NFL draft market. Got some draft coverage over at bangthebook.com over the weekend. Got some more NFL coverage today with some season win total head-to-head matchups. Spent some college football coverage with some games of the year and season win total stuff as well. And like I said, right here on Bang the Book Radio, We'll be doing some NFL draft coverage, some college football props, all kinds of different things here over the next week and a half or so. And of course, you know, who knows how long this quarantine thing will continue to go without actual games being played. So we're to try to find some content out there wherever we can find it. And we'll try to cover that here on Bang the Book Radio as well. You get the PDF of my 2020 MLB betting guide over at bangthebook.com or you can click around and check out those different individual articles. Uh, hopefully we get a baseball season here at some point in time. Going to keep doing the betters box in hopes that we get one, keep giving you some of the betting tips and some of the procedural things that I do on the Major League Baseball betting side. Uh, but, you know, for right now, obviously, we're still in that same holding pattern that we've been in now uh, for over a month. In any event, doing the Monday Mailbag here on today's show, I got eight questions from our good buddy, Rich Lamons via email and rich i appreciate the questions uh you know hopefully people out there are still listening didn't really get any other ones but at skating tripods on twitter adam at bangthebook.com via email and i've noticed maybe that email is not working out as well so skating tripods at gmail.com another way to get in touch with me if you've got betting questions any other kind of questions for the monday mailbag or just want to talk because you know hey a lot of people out there needing some assistance to get through the day. I certainly know that to be the case with me. Uh, so if you ever want to reach out, skatingtripods at gmail.com, one of the many ways you can reach me, or at skatingtripods on Twitter. All right, so like I said, got a bunch of questions here from our buddy Rich Lamons for the Monday Mailbag here today. And the first one asking about the first beer I can remember drinking you know, quite frankly, it's probably Labatt Blue. I'm sure there was some kind of rot gut expired beer in my parents' basement that I drank at some point in time, but neither one of my parents drank. So whatever was down there was from parties or whatever else. God knows how long all that shit was down there. Uh, but, you know, I was on a beer league hockey team filled with a bunch of guys that were a few years older than me. So, you know, I was probably five, six, seven years behind a lot of those guys. So, you know, kind of when they did things, I did things. So, you know, kind of in the locker room or you know, at their houses or whatever else. But I'd have to say probably Labatt Blue. And, you know, I remember I was probably 16, 17, something like that. 
and uh, there was a roller hockey rink that was shutting down in the area, and you know, the bar was just giving away dollar beers. Didn't matter what kind of beer it was, just dollar beers. And like I said, I was probably 16, 17, 18, something like that. Didn't get carded. I'm just sitting there with the boys and, you know, having a few Labatt Blues. And, and I miss those times. You know, I, I miss those good times, the simpler times. I miss those guys. I miss playing hockey. I haven't been up on skates in, in five or six years here. After I got done playing, for the most part, I was still doing some refing uh, with, you know, like some some double-A midget, triple-A midget type stuff, uh, all the way on down to, you know, the squirt level eight to ten-year-olds. I haven't been up on skates in a long time. I kind of miss it. Quite frankly, I miss doing anything these days. Uh, but definitely simpler times, a lot of great times with those guys. And, uh, you know, to my knowledge, all of them are still doing pretty well, and, and hopefully that continues to be the case. Second question here from Rich. Uh, if you don't use it, do you lose it? And uh, quite frankly, I wouldn't know. Somebody out there probably does know. I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, certainly appreciate uh, phallic-related questions, much like that one. Rich also asks, do I want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? And uh, no, I don't. However, two things. One, right now, silence is the most annoying sound in the world with this damn quarantine. But the other thing is, I don't know how many people know this, but the most annoying sound in the world thing, of course, comes from Dumb and Dumber, for those that don't know. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. That part was actually ad-libbed by Jim Carrey. And the funny thing is, when you watch that scene, you can see Jeff Daniels absolutely lose it when Jim starts yelling, screaming, whatever you want to call it. And the camera immediately gets off of him because, you know, they want to see him laughing. Uh, epic movie. I've got a print in my office here of Harry's ass crack from when he's sitting in the field in Nebraska after Lloyd goes the wrong way. Uh, God, I love that movie. It's uh, it always puts a smile on my face no matter what. And quite frankly, I may need to just start watching it every day uh, to keep getting through this whole quarantine thing. Uh, actually, football related question here from Rich next. How devastating would a minimized college football season be? And you know, look, obviously, it depends on how they work this thing out. I mean, do they only play the conference play schedule? You know, is that something that they look to try to do? Obviously, something like that would really hurt the group of five and the FCS teams, the teams that need those paycheck games. Uh, they need those non-conference games to kind of refill the finances and, you know, not just funding football with that, but funding other sports as well. And you start thinking about, you know, the title nine implications of some of these teams having to, or some of these universities and colleges having to shut down athletic programs. It would be very devastating to say the least, you know, I mean, a lot of teams, a lot of major schools losing that March Madness revenue or, you know, the uh, the low and mid-majors that would have been going to the tournament, that's a big financial loss for them. To not have a football season and, you know, furthermore, to not have a football season with the gate, you know, and, and getting you know, all those corporate seats, the suites and all those types of things, going to really, really hurt a lot of these, you know, colleges that work on thinner financial budgets. It would be bad. and there's no bailout coming for them. I know people talk about the school endowments and, and all those types of things, but you know, a lot of these schools, the deep South schools and stuff like that, I mean, what are they going to do? Are they going to be able to keep their football and their basketball programs going? Because yeah, those are the revenue programs, but also those are the programs that are forced to have the largest budgets. You know, obviously with football, you talk about a lot of players, but with basketball, you talk about a lot of travel, a lot of games, stuff like that. It would be devastating to a lot of the smaller schools that really, you know, can't withstand 
uh, that loss of revenue. So it'd be very, very difficult to say the least. Some schools are going to lose sports over this. There, there's no question about that. And depending on how the college football season works out, I mean, we're talking about a, a lot of financial losses for a lot of different kinds of people and different entities. You talk about the major sports networks. We're already seeing you know, the mainstream sports media laying people off, furloughing employees. You know, they start to not get some of those financial windfalls from a college football season. What happens to a lot of their college football writers and contributors and all that? It's devastating across the board. And obviously the loss of life is the biggest devastation here uh, with the, the COVID-19 and, and coronavirus outbreak. But yeah, a lot of people are just affected in so many different ways here. And you know, a lot of people in, in this line of work, in my industry, in this business, very, very affected as well. And, and I've been affected already too. So, you know, it, it's just, it, it's devastating across the board to say the least. And, and a minimized college football season, I know they try to talk about, you know, different ways of getting this through, you know, all these online classes already, are they going to really be able to have these student athletes on campus? Do you go all the way through the winter break? You know, do you get the NFL to do something like pushing the NFL draft back? into May or June next year to accommodate a longer college football season. Uh, and of course, all of this contingent on whether or not we get another outbreak in the fall. And that seems to be the expectation here. And, you know, you get one college football player on a team with the coronavirus, it shuts everything down, right? I, I don't, I don't know how any of this works out quite frankly. And, and it's, and it's very scary and it, it's very, uh, concerning for me professionally and personally and, and for a lot of people as well. So I mean, we're talking about widespread devastation, you know, for people that are not only in college football and the schools and universities trying to run these programs, but also the people that cover the sport, the people that write about the sport, the people that otherwise benefit from college football, the sports books and, and their you know decreased handles and, the push for legalized sports betting in other states, you know, does that just abruptly stop? I don't know. I mean, there are, there are no good things to come out of this uh, at this point in time. In, in a lot of, in a lot of different respects, it, it, it would, I, I don't know, Rich. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know how many other people do either. If I had the opportunity to drive a race car on an empty track, which track would it be? And how fast would I hope to go? Interesting question here. And as I was kind of researching this one a little bit, I think the Nürburgring Nordschleife over in, G in Germany would be the one that I would want to pick to drive because it's long. There are a lot of turns. I love corners. You know, I think corners would be the most fun thing for me, obviously the most dangerous, but I, I, I love corners, man. I, I love having the ability to hug the corners in a smaller car or something like that. You know, the, the closest I've ever gotten is like driving the West Virginia Turnpike down 77, but you can get after it a little bit. You know, you got some long, uh, you know, steeper de declines. You've got a lot of twists and turns, stuff like that. And I kind of like actually driving that part uh, of 77 to go visit my wife's family and friends down in South Carolina. Most of the rest of the drive is pretty damn boring, but at least there's that, you know, to kind of, uh, I don't want to say get the adrenaline flowing a little bit, but kind of give it a little bit of excitement. But as far as going fast, I mean, Talladega would have to be the one, right? Because you've got the big, long straightaways and 
If I'm going to hit a really high speed, I would need the long straightaway to feel very, very comfortable with that. I'll hopefully push 150 plus. Um, you know, not really, not really a, a motorsports guy by any means, but you know, I'd like a little bit of adrenaline. You know, I mean, for the most part here uh, at this point in time with everything that's going on, I would take any bit of adrenaline uh, that I could possibly find. What's the fastest I've ever driven? Well, I've hit 100 a few times, you know, going through the West Virginia Turnpike. Um, you know, uh, my dad had a, a medical emergency a few years ago and got it going pretty good with that. But I will be getting my dad's 86 Dodge Daytona Turbo Z at some point. So whenever that happens, I don't know. I guess maybe I'll kind of push it and, uh, and see what I can kind of run up there. Of course, as safely as you could possibly do something like that. Another question from Rich here. Putter and one other club on the golf course. What club would you pick? Seven iron, man. It's got to be a seven iron. You can hit every shot with a seven iron. If you got a chip, you got to hit a long iron. Um, you know, you can even putt with a seven iron if you really wanted to. Uh, but the seven iron, I mean, it's the obvious answer here. It's what a lot of people would say. Uh, probably the mer- most versatile club in the bag, uh, I would say. And, and quite frankly, I could putt with a seven iron, and I don't think it would make a whole hell of a lot of difference because I. Not any part of my golf game is any good. Uh, speaking of golf, it would be great if the weather would stop being shitty around here. So it was actually something we could go out and do because the golf courses uh, are still open here in the state of Ohio. Finally, last question here from Rich. Have I dabbled in any of the Madden simulations or any of the other forced events here uh, with everything going on? And no, not really. I, I've pissed away some money playing video poker uh, online. But beyond that, not really, you know, a few draft investments, stuff like that, but nothing regard with regards to Madden or NBA 2K or any of those things. Uh, I, I barely have the the energy to, you know, study up on the things I need to look at uh, with what's going on here in the world, let alone trying to look at these simulations or anything like that. Um, a lot of my video game interests are, are on the vintage variety, too. I played some NFL Blitz 2000 on my PlayStation over the weekend, um, you know, played some Tony Hawk. You know, Tecmo Super Bowl, stuff like that. I don't even think I've fired up my PlayStation 4 uh, since all of this started. So I guess I'm just kind of an old school guy uh, in that department. But, Rich, I appreciate the questions, man. I always appreciate you checking in as well, too. And uh, hopefully we can get you up here in the fall uh, with some things rescheduled. But in any event, I guess on the baseball side, something I can talk about a little bit here. And I had a hard time figuring out what to discuss. And quite frankly, I think on Thursday... I might talk about the baseball movies that are out there. Uh, obviously, we've all seen a lot of them. Major League, Major League Two, Back to the Minors, uh, Moneyball, 42, Bull Durham, Eight Men Out, Field of Dreams. Uh, the list goes on and on. For the love of the game. Uh, shit, what else is out there? Trouble with the Curve. All that different type of thing. Maybe I'll just do a baseball movie podcast on Thursday since a lot of these are probably available on most of the streaming sites that are out there. Um, or you can rent them. You know, places are still renting movies, I think, as far as I know. Some of them are probably still on YouTube. Maybe I'll talk about that on Thursday. Something kind of more uh, lighthearted, I guess. Maybe not as analytically driven. Uh, so maybe I'll do that on Thursday. Talking about the baseball movies that are out there. Of course, the ones that I've seen. The ones I haven't seen. Uh, all that type of thing. But one thing I did want to talk about here on today's show is the importance of matchup-dependent handicapping and looking at splits. And I do this a lot. And to me, I think it's very, very important to pay attention to lefty versus righty splits for hitters and for pitchers. Because more often than not, 
home and away splits will be priced into the line because you know where that guy's going to pitch. A guy like Mike Fires, for example, his home power rating is a hell of a lot different than his road power rating, as we know. So something like that is very much factored into the equation when you talk about the betting odds. But I don't think that lefty-righty splits are factored into the equation as much. Now, part of the reason is because we don't know exactly what that lineup is going to look like. You know, we know Mike Fires is pitching in Texas today. You know, usually pitches his home games in Oakland. Well, now he's pitching in Texas today. That's going to create an adjustment for his line out there in the betting market. And furthermore, we're going to see money come in against a guy like Mike Fires anytime he pitches in a less than favorable environment. So home and road splits are going to be priced into the market. I don't think lefty and righty splits are accounted for nearly as much because for one thing, they're not as obvious. You know, we know a good home pitcher with a good home ballpark going on the road is probably going to have more difficulty. So it's very easy to price that into the market. It's not as easy to price these lefty-righty splits into the market to balance their risk and balance their action. But also, you know, again, the lineups are different and every lineup is different in the sense that some lineups have a lot of righties and some lineups don't. We know park factors. We know the impact that they can have on individual performance. If you talk about pitchers facing maybe a lefty-heavy lineup or a righty-heavy lineup, that's going to vary from team to team. So there is that element to it as well. So if we look back at last year, with the highest weighted on base averages, again, WOBA, stat that I use a lot here on the show, highest WOBA against versus left-handed batters. You've got Jordan Zimmerman at 411. I believe that's uh, which Lopez is that? I have to look that up on the fly here because I just put Lopez, and as we know, a lot of different Lopez's out there uh, in Major League Baseball, to say the least. Um, I believe it was. Let's see here. I want to say that one is uh, Jorge Lopez from the Kansas City Royals, and yes, it is Jorge Lopez of the Kansas City Royals at 405. Antonio Senzatella, 394. Trevor Williams, 393. Jake Arietta, 387. Jordan Lyles, 382. Tanner Roark and Glenn Sparkman, 370. Adam Wainwright, 368. Pablo Lopez, 367. So the thing about a lot of these guys is that by and large, they're not very good. You know, a guy like Jordan Lyles is good against righties, bad against lefties. Uh, Adam Wainwright is a league average-ish type of guy. Other than that, none of these guys are very good. So their prices are going to be factored into the equation by not being very good across the board. However, when they face lefty heavy lineups, they're going to be that much worse. So that's something I really take an extended look at on a daily basis, breaking down these games is, what is the composition of this lineup that this guy's going to face? You know, for a guy like, let's say Jake Arietta, for example, if I see that he's going to face seven lefties, one righty, and the pitcher, that's a big problem to me. That's a big red flag to me. If he's going to face a righty-heavy lineup, maybe I'm less likely to go against him in that particular matchup. Now, when we look at the lowest Wobas against from left-handed batters last season, Justin Verlander at 239, Lucas Giolito 241, Garrett Cole 249, Steven Strasburg 251, 
Yanni Chirinos, 252. Zach Greinke, 255. Brett Anderson, 258. Chase Anderson, 262. Jack Flaherty, Walker Bueller, 263. Something I want you to pay attention to here. When we look at the lefty, or at the the pitchers who were the worst against left-handed batters last year, they are all right-handed. Every single one of them, right-handed. The best Wobas against lefties, nine of those ten guys were right-handed. The only one who wasn't is Brett Anderson, who's an extreme ground ball type of guy. Now, when we look at the difference against righties, this will be very, very interesting here. The highest Wobas against right-handed batters last season, Kyle Freeland, 383, Yusei Kikuchi, 374, Drew Smiley, 364, Wade LeBlanc, 356, Yvonne Nova, 355, Martin Perez, 353, Stephen Brault, 351, Jay, uh, yeah, Jay Happ, 345, John Lester, 340, and then Dallas Keuchel, 339. Now, what do we notice about most of those guys? Well, they're right-handed, or they're left-handed, excuse me. I'm all over the place today, I apologize. But they're all left-handed, except for when you look at a guy like Ivan Nova, who's just not very good. The rest of those guys are all left-handed. So again, it makes sense here that righties struggle against lefties, by and large, and then lefties struggle against righties. All those guys, left-handed pitchers, except for Ivan Nova, And guys like Robbie Ray and Jose Quintana were next. So this is very important stuff. Again, I think home and road splits are factored into the line because of the park factors and because of just common sense, common sense expectations. I don't think these things are factored into the equation as much when you start talking about pitchers and their splits against certain uh, handedness. Again, remember, the list of best Wobas against lefties, Verlander, Giolito, Cole, Strasburg, Chirinos, Granke, Flaherty, Bueller, right-handed pitchers against these guys, against these left-handed batters. Now, against right-handed batters, Scherzer, 223, Kenta Maeda, 229, Jacob DeGrom, 234, Mike Soroka, 235, Garrett Cole, 243, Jack Flaherty, 245, Charlie Morton, Justin Verlander, 247. Jake Odorizzi, 255. Luis Castillo, 256. All right-handed pitchers. Again, most of these guys are elite. Scherzer, DeGrom, Cole, Flaherty, Morton, Verlander, Castillo. Elite types of guys, but all right-handed. So again, whether it's lefties or righties, the best guys in baseball in that split were almost exclusively right-handed. So what that says to me is that, by and large, righties have an advantage over lefties out there, which is very surprising to me because, typically, I like the unfamiliar lefty angle. I like teams that are facing a lefty that they don't see a whole lot. But here we've got the elite right-handers in Major League Baseball are elite no matter what. And the bad the, the bad to average lefties are really bad against opposite handed splits and same thing with the average to bad righty. So realistically speaking for me, what this tells me is that I don't want to bet against elite pitchers very often. 
And if you remember back to the month of March, and I even mentioned this on the Deep Dive podcast, that it was very, very profitable with favorites of minus 180 or higher over the last five, six years. Now, a lot of people want to be allergic to chalk. They don't want to lay big numbers. But when you're laying big numbers with these elite pitchers, they are elite almost no matter what. And that's where this big minus 180 number comes into play. I think that's pretty interesting to take a look at here. And again, as a whole, it's very important to look at those split numbers. you got a right-handed pitcher versus left-handed batters or left-handed pitcher versus right-handed batters. I don't think that's factored into the equation as much as home and road split. Like, that's a good way to get an advantage out there. And something else to keep in mind here is that this may be more important from a total standpoint than it is from a side standpoint as well. You know, from a side standpoint, a lot of this stuff is factored into the equation. From a total standpoint, it's a little bit different. You know, so if you've got a lefty facing a right-handed heavy lineup who gets slaughtered, then you may want to look at that from a total standpoint, too. And obviously, you get things like the minus one, the minus one and a half, all that kind of thing. Now, when we talk about platoon advantages, which is what this is, by definition, a platoon advantage is a right-handed batter against a left-handed pitcher or a left-handed batter against a right-handed pitcher. Last season, platoon advantages were utilized in 52.7% of plate appearances league-wide. Now, the Orioles were actually number one in platoon advantage at 65.3%. The Indians were second at 64.4%. The Pirates third, 61.5%. The Diamondbacks fourth, 61.4%. The White Sox fifth at 60.5%. The Twins, 59.7%. Giants, 59.4%. Rangers, 58.4%. Brewers, 56.4%. Then finally, the Dodgers. And the Blue Jays, 55.4. So we've got some good offensive teams in there. The Twins, uh, the Dodgers. We also have some bad offensive teams. The Orioles, the Pirates, uh, the Diamondbacks weren't great. The Giants were very bad. So there's not necessarily a correlation here between good offensive teams and having a platoon advantage. As we look at the teams that utilize the platoon advantage the lowest, The Marlins at 40.8, the Padres 42.6, two bad offenses. But then the Yankees and the Astros at 42.9. The Cardinals were not a great offense, 44.3. The Nationals were 44.9. Tigers 46.2, the Mets 46.3, A's 48.8, Reds 49.2. So there's not necessarily a correlation here to offensive success. Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Arizona, Chicago, high platoon advantage percentages, not good offense. Yankees, Astros, Nationals, low platoon advantage percentages, but very good offense. But it is worth noting that right-handed heavy teams, like the Yankees, like the Astros, like the Tigers, had fewer platoon advantage plate appearances. That can help or that can hurt because if you're very, very good your personnel is good, it doesn't matter. If your personnel is bad and you don't have platoon advantages, then it's really bad. That's when it's really, really detrimental. So platoon advantages to me are very important. Looking at splits for pitchers, very, very important. And again, keep in mind that right-handed heavy teams will have very low platoon advantage plate appearances. 
because you face a right-handed pitcher about 70% of the time on average. So if you're right-handed heavy, you face a lot of righty-righty matchups. If you're a team that's not good in those righty-righty matchups, you are not going to be a good baseball team, like the Marlins, like the Padres, like the Tigers. You're not going to be good offensively. So some of these teams would be well-served to mix in some more lefties because we're not suddenly going to see a lot fewer right-handed pitchers out there in baseball. But by and large, this is a consistent percentage year over year. Last year, 52.7% ball plate appearances had a platoon advantage, 53.9% in 2018, 525 in 2017, 529 in 2016, 53.6 in 2015. Oddly enough, the Yankees back in 2015 led all of baseball in platoon percentage advantage at 73%. So the times have changed for them. It's all about finding the best personnel. And a lot of times what we see is that smaller market teams will tend to have higher platoon advantage percentages. They'll try to find those advantages where they can. A team like the Indians, for example, almost year over year ranks in the top three in, in platoon advantage percentage because they don't have money to go out there and buy guys that hit pitchers of both sides. So they have to be creative with their plate appearance. They're always going to be at or near the top of the list in this department. But again, I think this is very beneficial from a totals market standpoint. Holman road splits will be factored in across the board because they're very easy to just assume. Lefty-righty lineup splits are not nearly as easy to assume because each lineup is constructed very, very different. So this is something I think will be very, very beneficial for you over the course of the season to look at these lefty-righty splits, not just for hitters, but for pitchers as well. Again, from a side standpoint and from a total standpoint, pretty much across the board out there in Major League Baseball. So I thank Rich for the questions here for the Monday Mailbag. Adam at Mangabook.com, at Skating Tripods on Twitter, SkatingTripods at gmail.com. If you want to send any sort of questions or if you just want to chat about something, you can hit me up in any of those three ways. We'll be back on Tuesday with Brian Blessing. Uh, maybe I'll work in a Wednesday show looking at the draft this week. Thursday, I'll talk about baseball movies on the betters box. Uh, we're just going to try and do as much content as we can here over the next 10 days in advance of the NFL draft. And, of course, with the better spot still ongoing, try and achieve some sense of normalcy with everything. So that'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And remember that you will never strike out in the better.